We'll begin a new study this morning. We're going to be uh, studying together Paul's letter to Timothy. And Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus are favorites of young preachers. And I used to take them personally. Now I have to admit I identify more with the author, Paul the Aged, uh, than the recipients, uh, especially when I do correspond with those young men that you just mentioned this morning, Carol, uh, and the young women who've gone out from Chatham Christian Church as our Timothys. But that's not to say that I'm too old to hear again what Paul has to say to his Timothys. For what he said applies to everyone in a pastoral ministry. In fact, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus have been known as the pastoral epistles since the 1700s. They've been placed in a special category separate from the rest of Paul's letters because there's a significant difference between them and the other epistles. His other letters, with the exception of Philemon, which we looked at on Easter Sunday, were addressed to churches. These letters are addressed to individuals, Timothy and Titus. And the bulk of what he has to say can be viewed as advice from an apostle to young preachers. Now, Timothy and Titus weren't actually ministers of a congregation or pastors, as some would call them, thus the name pastoral. But they were special representatives of the apostle to various churches. They were sent to churches or left in churches after Paul had gone elsewhere to help straighten out problems. And these letters are unique in that they are the only New Testament letters that deal with church problems primarily from an administrative rather than a theological viewpoint. And they're therefore very practical in nature giving specific advice on how churches should be structured and how specific problems should be handled. Their value for today should therefore be obvious. Now, we have historical roots in what's known as the Restoration Movement, a movement back in the 1800s to restore the church as it appeared in New Testament times. And we share a commitment to restoring that church according to a New Testament pattern. So we should be intimately well acquainted with these letters written to preachers dealing with churches. And um, as you may or may not know, as a congregation, we do not have an ecclesiastical authority over us. There's no body telling us what we need to practice or what we need to preach or what we need to do. We don't even have a constitution and bylaws to guide us. We're not bound by any man-written document that tells us how we should be organized or how we should function as a church. And this has given us the freedom to change the organizational structure of our church when deemed appropriate. And this we have done over the years. When the church was first organized nearly 50 years ago, 
Decisions were made at monthly congregational meetings. By the time the church was a year old, elders and deacons had been elected. The elders were given the general oversight of the church, and deacons were made chairman of various committees. A year or two later, committee meetings were eliminated, and deacons were elected to personally oversee particular ministries in the church. Eventually, we decided that elections in a church were too political and began simply affirming the qualifications of the elders and gave them the authority to select individuals to serve in various capacities of leadership in the church. So we have changed. And so we may continue to change. You know, not having a constitution and bylaws that are difficult to change give us the freedom to change. That is not to say, however, that we can do whatever we want. We are committed to restoring the New Testament church in its faith and practice, and as such, we are bound to the New Testament. In effect, the New Testament is our constitution and bylaws. The changes that we make are merely attempts to strip away extra-biblical traditions and the cultural baggage that's been added to church structures over the years. And it's not always easy to know just what is germane to the New Testament pattern and what isn't. You know, nowhere in the New Testament do we have explicit instructions on every aspect of organizing and overseeing a congregation. I'm convinced God intentionally left much of it flexible to allow for cultural differences and that he expects us to seek his will for many things through prayer and consensus of the eldership. Some things, however, have been spelled out for us, and it's essential that we never violate what has been revealed. It's therefore necessary that we have a clear understanding of what has been said and much that has been said in the area of organizing and administering a congregation is to be found in the pastorals. Now, I don't want you to think, well, this is going to be boring. Who cares? Well, it is important, but it also gets personal because there's more in the pastorals than just direction for structuring a church, okay? It also gives some very specific advice on personal relationships within the church. It gives us instructions on ordering our own personal priorities and the ordering of our lives. It gets very specific about the relationship between men and women and children in the church. It's going to be interesting. I think you'll find the study interesting. Uh, we're going to pick up some insight into the function of the church, and we're also going to pick up some very important details about your life in the home as well. So I, I think this is going to be a good study, and I trust that uh, you'll put your heart and soul into it as we study together. Well, that's enough of an intro to the letter, so let's go on to the letter's intro. And the first thing the letter tells us is that it is a letter from Paul 
to Timothy. Duh, okay? Verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, as was the custom of the day, the sender of the letter first identified himself and then stated to whom the letter was addressed. The sender is identified as Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, since Paul was a very close personal friend of Timothy's, it would seem strange for Paul to make a point of his apostleship if the letter was intended only for Timothy's eyes. We can therefore assume right from the start that this letter is more than just personal correspondence. It was intended as a letter of authorization. Timothy was to use this letter as authorization to do what Paul told him to do. Now again, Timothy wasn't the minister of a congregation nor was he an elder in it, so some might question his authority. With a letter from an apostle, however, he in effect had apostolic authority in the church. So Paul makes it very clear that this letter comes from an apostle of Christ Jesus according to the commandment of God our Savior and Christ Jesus, who is our hope. Now, did something strike you as a little unusual in there? You know, it's a little unusual to refer to God as our Savior. We usually think of Jesus as the Savior. But by altering the designation just a bit, I think Paul has done us a big favor. Sometimes we, we tend to think of God as some kind of vengeful, angry God that has to be appeased and that Jesus came to pacify him. Nothing, nothing could be further from the truth. The plan of salvation originated in the mind of God, and it was he who put it into action. John 3.16 makes that perfectly clear. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So it's perfectly appropriate to speak of God as our Savior. And this Paul does here and in his letter to Titus. Then we note that this letter is addressed to Timothy, a man Paul refers to as my true child in the faith. And we're able to piece together quite a bit about this man named Timothy. We know, first of all, that he was the son of a mixed marriage. His father was a Greek pagan and his mother a devout Jew, who, along with his grandmother, taught him the scriptures from childhood. Apparently, he was raised in Lystra and was most likely converted to Christianity by Paul on his first missionary journey. On his second journey, Paul asked Timothy to join him. And from that time on, Timothy was a devoted co-worker 
of the apostle. That he was faithful to the Lord is indicated by Paul's emphasizing that he was a true child of the faith. Paul greets Timothy with a prayer for grace, mercy, and peace on his behalf. Now, grace has reference to God's favor in the fullest sense. Obviously, it's not a prayer for saving grace, as Timothy has already received that, but for God's continual blessing in Timothy's life. The inclusion of mercy in a greeting is unusual for Paul, and he only adds it to his letters to Timothy. It's been suggested that it's included because Paul knew that Timothy's job was going to be hard. It was going to be a difficult job, and that he would need a special awareness of the mercy of God to deal with the failures and the frustrations he was bound to encounter in the churches. And that may very well be the case. And then, of course, when someone's life is filled with grace and mercy, they're going to have a sense of peace and well-being in spite of their immediate circumstances. So that's the opening prayer for Timothy. He's being assured of God's grace and mercy and peace in the circumstances he's going to face. So what are those circumstances? Well, we get a pretty good idea when we next discover that apparently this letter is being written from Macedonia to Ephesus. If you don't have a map, you can check it out in the back of your Bible later. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Now, while it doesn't specifically say that Timothy was still at Ephesus and that Paul was writing from Macedonia, I think that can be shown to be a reasonable conclusion. Once you figure out when Paul left Timothy in Ephesus and went on to Macedonia. The book of Acts never records this taking place. Neither does it tell of the time when Titus was left in Crete by the apostle, as the letter to Titus indicates. So it appears that there's a real problem here, figuring out when all of this took place, especially if you assume that Paul was killed immediately following the close of the book of Acts. That assumption, however, may be faulty and the cause of the problem. When the book of Acts closes, we find Paul imprisoned under house arrest in Rome. And Luke concludes by saying, And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. He doesn't say Paul was executed at the end of those two years. In fact, the circumstances of his imprisonment would lead you to believe that he wasn't about to be killed. But since we know from history that Paul was executed outside of Rome following an imprisonment, many have assumed that his execution followed his two-year imprisonment. 
The details given to us in the pastorals, however, can't be fit into what we know of Paul's travels before his Roman imprisonment. And this, along with a difference in style and emphasis, is why the introduction to the book of Timothy, as uh, reported in Wikipedia, suggests that Paul really wasn't even the author of these letters. But that suggestion is absurd in light of both internal within the text and external historical evidence to the contrary. The problem, I think, is quickly overcome when the events mentioned in the pastorals are taken as evidence that Paul was released at the end of his two-year imprisonment in Rome and that he continued making missionary journeys after the close of the record in Acts. And this is entirely possible because Acts never claims to be a complete account of Paul's life and ministry. And we know from Paul's letter to the Romans that he planned to go on to Spain. And Clement, an early church historian, indicates that Paul actually did do that when he says that he had gone to the limits of the West until he couldn't go any further west. That would be Spain. So apparently Paul was released from prison around 62 AD and, among other things, did make a missionary journey to Spain. Assuming this to be true and adding up the bits and pieces we find in the pastorals, we can tentatively reconstruct an itinerary for the apostle following his release. Immediately after his release, Paul sent Timothy to Philippi with news of his release and headed toward Asia Minor with Titus. On the way, he left Titus on the island of Crete to work with the church that was located there. Paul then traveled on to Ephesus, went on to Colossae, returned to Ephesus, where Timothy then joined him. Paul then left Ephesus, heading for Macedonia, and asked Timothy to stay and help the church in Ephesus, which is having some serious problems. For Macedonia, Paul then wrote two letters that closely resemble each other, 1 Timothy and Titus. In his letter to Titus, he asked him to meet him in Nicopolis, and they spent the winter there. He then traveled to Spain, possibly with Titus, and then later returned to Asia Minor. After his return, he made another brief tour of Asia Minor, visited Corinth, and then went back to Rome. When he got to Rome, or on his way there, he was arrested. This time, Nero was on the throne, and Paul was imprisoned as a criminal against the state. From prison, he wrote a second letter to Timothy, indicating that he expected to soon be executed, and asked Timothy to come quickly. Whether Timothy made it or not, we don't know. But historians do tell us that Paul was beheaded about three miles outside of Rome. Now, if our reconstructed itinerary is correct, Paul wrote 1 Timothy from the province of Macedonia, most likely the city of Philippi, shortly after having left Timothy in Ephesus to deal with certain men in the church who were teaching strange doctrines, doctrines that were speculative in nature 
and centered around myths and genealogies. Instead of furthering the administration of God, as Paul puts it, causing the kingdom to grow by teaching faith-building truths that had been revealed, these men were speculating about things that were no doubt interesting, but either not true or irrelevant. Kind of like the report I read on Fox News this week, that the rapture was going to take place on April 23rd. Have you seen that? Well, according to David Mead, whoever he is, the sun and the moon will be seen within the constellation Virgo, as will Jupiter, and that this is the sign depicted in Revelation 12 that indicates Jesus is on his way. It's going to happen. April 23rd. He also said that planet X, which NASA has repeatedly said is a hoax, will appear in the sky that day, causing volcanic eruptions, tsunamis, and earthquakes. So a big event, according to David Mead, is coming. The rapture, as some refer to an event that we don't even believe is going to take place as they present it, which leads to the second coming of Christ, is supposed to be taking place. What, a little over a week from now? Does that scare you? Oh, me either. Well, in the article, a guy named Jonathan Sarfati, whoever he is, responded by saying this. There is nothing to suggest that April 23rd is a momentous date for biblical prophecy, and Christians need to be careful about being drawn into such sensationalist claims. Well, Paul basically told Timothy the same thing and told him to stop the church from majoring in minors and to get her back on the right course of instruction, teaching the things that would lead to the results that God wants from the church. And what are those results? What is it that should come from our teaching? Is it all kinds of speculative ideas that we argue about and we make charts on and, and write books about and have videos on? Or is it something that's going to make a fundamental difference in our life? I like what he says in verse 5. But the goal of our instruction is love. From a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The goal of instruction in the church is love. It's not to simply fill heads with knowledge. It's not to make everyone into Bible scholars. It's to enable people to love. And Paul tells us love comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. That if we faithfully teach the truth as revealed in God's Word, truth about ourselves and others and God Himself, 
we will be declaring a message that can set people free to love themselves and others and God. And if we will wholeheartedly accept revealed instruction with a pure heart, without looking for angles or loopholes or having mixed motives in wanting to accept what we find, we'll be changed by it. If our heart is open and honest and willing to accept the truth of God, we will be changed by it. And as we're being changed by the truth of God, we'll find ourselves with a good conscience before God. Not because we've played games with sin or pretended it didn't exist or renamed things and said they're okay, but because we found a clear conscience because our sins have been forgiven. We'll have a clean slate and therefore a clear conscience. We have nothing to hide if we know we've been forgiven. We don't have to pretend. That should come from solid teaching in God's Word. We know that God accepts us even though we are flawed and sinful because the penalty for our sin has been paid. If we understand that, life can be lived on the basis of faith that God loves us and that he will meet our needs. That will free us from the temptation to walk over others to get what we think we need. That frees us to treat our brothers like brothers, like fellow heirs of the grace and love of God. And that is what the church is to be. A fellowship of brothers and sisters brought together and made family by the love of God. And that should be the goal of our instruction in the church. Everything that we say and do should have as its goal the building up of a loving community of believers who understand themselves because they've come to understand sin and what sin has done and how sin can be remedied through the grace of God. They'll understand others because they'll view them as victims of an enemy who's trying to fracture our fellowship and destroy lives. That helps us understand when people do horrible things to each other. And we can reach out to them with love. And we'll understand what God has done. We'll know what he's done to save us, to redeem us, to make us be what he created us to be. Everything we study should lead to that. Even getting the details to this little letter should lead us to understanding that God loves us enough to speak directly to us and to tell us how to order our church, how to order our lives, how to respond to each other so the love of God can be seen and felt. The information that I shared may seem of historical irrelevance to you, but it's not. This is what grounds God's word 
in history and truth. We're not talking about myths here. We're not talking about something that somebody just thought might be a good idea. We're talking about real life and the struggles that it takes to be what God has called us to be and how God has called men to, 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 to address specifically situations that, that destroy fellowship in churches and destroy preachers constantly hearing horrible stories of ministries going under because of sin that's not been acknowledged and forgiven. There are lots of issues in the church today. There are lots of problems. But there have been problems in the church for 2,000 years because it's made up of sinful people. But we've got the answer here. If we'll study it, if we'll learn it, if we'll understand it, and be changed by it. That's why we study God's Word. Again, I don't expect you to go out of here today and, and recite all the details of uh, Paul's journeys and where he went. And, but I want you to know that it's historical. Okay? Just embrace that. What we're talking about is fact. It's history. It's not fantasy. It's not religious dreaming. I mean, I forget the details all the time. It amazes me how quickly I forget. So don't worry about what you're going to forget. Just remember what you remember. And that is that God has spoken. And God has addressed our needs. And God has the answer to make us into the loving body He wants us to be. That's how we study His Word. And that's my prayer for you this morning. That you'll surrender to his lordship. That you'll respond to what he's offered. You'll find the resolve to not only come to Christ, but to be what he's called you to be. I'm resolved no longer to linger. There's lots of things out there that divide the church and draw us away from each other and draw us away from Christ. Let's find the resolve to be what he's called us to be. Let's stand.